are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Morning, church. I noticed that I'm not a very good participant out there. Not good to my throat because I just go for it. No warming up. And then by the time I get up here, my voice is scratchy. And I set my coffee down behind me and never grab it. So I'm going I'm to set it right there just in case I need it. Um, good morning and thank you, John Tavius and um, all those who led us this morning, led us before the throne, reminded us of why we are here, reminded us of the hope found in Jesus. Um, hope that everyone had a good Thanksgiving, whether you had a restful Thanksgiving or whether you were um, traveling or participating in all the madness that is Black Friday and the busyness of the season. I hope that you were reminded of um, all that we had to be thankful for. I hope that you're reminded of all of the, the gifts that we have been given through family and friends and seasons of celebration, times for rest. Um, our GC shared a Thanksgiving meal last week. Um, we've kind of made that a tradition and if you'll allow me a sappy moment, um, I can honestly say that I was reminded as we gathered and as we talked, we enjoyed, enjoyed our time. I was reminded of all that we have to be thankful for here at Emmanuel, all that we have to be thankful for within our gospel communities. Um, God has given us a true gift. It's his kindness and it's his grace that allow us to be a part of this family and allow us to live life not in isolation, but in community. And so... Um, I'm thankful for each of you here this morning, and I encourage you, if you're not in a GC, it is God's gift to us to be able to live in community, so find one um, and enjoy God's gift and, and, and be thankful for that gift. Um, so now as we find ourselves for the next four Sundays in the season of Advent, um, this, is a, this is a season I'm not, I wasn't really familiar with growing up. Um, it's not something that my church um, practiced. Um, it was a word that I was familiar with, whether it was from um, Christmas movies or seeing it, you know, in different little punch-out boxes at Trader Joe's or whatever. Um, but you can, uh, no, no matter what background you came from, um, we find ourselves in a season of honoring Advent, and so I want us to look at what that is. As strictly speaking, it's it's defined as the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. We use the Christian um, or church definition, Advent is the coming or second coming of Christ. Um, and though we are nearing the end of our calendar year, as far as the liturgical calendar is concerned, that is the, the calendar that we use to track um, different holidays and, and church practices like Advent, Lent, Easter, this first Sunday of Advent, which falls um, on the first Sunday after Thanksgiving each year, is actually the beginning of the liturgical calendar. And so um, we start a new year this morning. So Happy New Year. Um, for the next four Sundays uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we'll be remembering the first coming of Christ. And... Um, We'll be looking back and remembering the longing of God's people as they waited for the promised Messiah. 
A few weeks back as we studied the book of Ecclesiastes, we talked about the mystery of time. And I mentioned that for myself, and I'm sure for many of you, you can relate, um, as a kid, Christmas seemed to take forever. It seemed to, to be a, a long away dream that never could come fast enough. But as adults, if we're not careful, if you blink, you'll miss it altogether. And you're opening presents around the tree, and you just, the, the mystery of Christmas has, has eluded you this year. I'm not sure if you can relate. Um, but practically speaking, for, for me, this season of Advent has become a much-needed time for reflection each year. It's a time to at least attempt, in the midst of all the busyness and all of the schedule and the, um, all the good things that keep us busy during this holiday season, it's a needed time for reflection. So um, you may or may not be aware, but there is a war that has been raging for quite some time um, surrounding Christmas. So maybe you find yourself this morning fighting on one side or the other. Maybe you're so firmly rooted in your own tradition that you're not even aware that someone could disagree with your opinion. The thought that someone would think other than you may seem preposterous. But the moral dilemma, the question at hand is this. When is it appropriate to start listening to Christmas music? Now, the two most popular sides of this are either November 1st, right after Halloween, or Black Friday, right after Thanksgiving, and um, along with the music comes all of the other holiday traditions, the Christmas movies, the decorations, things of that nature. And for most of my life, I held firmly to the side that said Black Friday. Thanksgiving is its own thing. It's its own holiday. We should properly celebrate Thanksgiving. And then on Black Friday, after we've given Thanksgiving its proper time, we move on to Christmas. Because after all, Christmas gets its, it's all of December. Unless you are like my wife and adhere to a schedule that says Christmas decorations must come down on December 26th. So most of December. But um, I planted my flag at an early age on Team Black Friday. But as I've gotten older and as Christmas has come even faster... I found my convictions wavering, and this is actually a very difficult thing for me to admit because I pride myself typically on being a man of principle and conviction, and I've even gone rounds with John Tavius on this very debate, but um, as I've gotten older, I've started to, to waver. And so um, in our family for the past couple of years, we've begun to um, listen to Christmas music and watch Christmas movies. Um, starting the week of Thanksgiving, as we're traveling to see family and kind of going about our, our week, start kicking off the holiday season. And so um, I hope that that confession doesn't make you think less of me this morning, but, um, you know, I, I find that I need a little bit longer to properly focus in on Christmas. And so we begin our traditions a little bit earlier. And told you before about my family tradition of go, going and getting a Christmas tree. Um, we, you'll be happy to know that this year we, um, we, that was a success. We looked a little bit like the Griswolds as we came back from Mississippi with a 10-foot Christmas tree on top of the car and a, a luggage rack um, strapped with suitcases on the back. And inside we had six people and at one point four dogs. That, some of them were not ours, but um, it was quite a circus, but we made it home. Um, but 
we all know the truth is that for believers, Christmas is so much more than these traditions. It's more than Christmas trees, presents. It's more than Christmas music and movies. And while all of these things are good, um, Christmas for believers celebrates the birth of Jesus. It celebrates the coming of the promised Messiah. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we miss the most important part of Christmas. It's God made flesh to dwell among us. It's a worthy celebration. It's worthy of us taking time to pause and to reflect on this marvelous truth, a truth on which all of our other traditions rest. And so um, as the elders discussed what direction we felt led to take the messages for this Advent season, we felt led to look at the Old Testament and to verses or passages that point to the coming Messiah. So on this first Sunday of Advent, let's look together where the hope of Advent truly begins, starting in Genesis. In the first few chapters of Genesis, we see that God is creating the world. He separates the light from the darkness, and he puts the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule at night. He places each star in its place, and he spins each planet into motion. He creates the earth, and he fills it with all manner of living things, from the flowers of the fields to the fish in the sea. And then he creates Adam from the dust of the ground, and he creates Eve from the rib of Adam. Genesis 1.31 says that God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. All that God created was good. He lovingly places Adam and Eve in the garden. He gives them charge over creation and he instructs them to, to enjoy the plentiful, plentiful fruit of the garden. And he tells them that they can eat of any tree in the garden save one. And so we know the rest of the story all too well. Sin entered the world when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. They believed the lies of Satan and they doubted the faithfulness of God when they took and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, they failed to believe God's word, and death soon followed. John Collins says this of the command given to Adam not to eat of the tree. God intended that through this tree, humans would come to know good and evil, either from above as masters of temptation or from below as slaves to sin. So they could believe the promise of God, and they would eventually come to know good from evil as masters or conquerors of temptation, or they could fail to believe the promise of God and become slaves to sin. Unfortunately for them and for us, they learned the hard way. I remember trying to process this as a kid. I don't know if you remember the first time hearing this story, but I remember thinking how unfair it was that we were stuck with their mistakes. I mean, after all, they just had one job. They only had one rule that they couldn't break, and they, they broke it. And I didn't understand. I thought, it must have been so easy. You just stay away from the tree. You just don't take the fruit. But as I've grown up and I've learned the deceptiveness of sin... I've seen time and time again in my own life and in the lives of those around me how, 
how deceptive sin can be and how easily it can seep in and mislead. And so the problem was that it wasn't a conscious decision to deliberately break the rule that had been placed in front of them. It was, it was a twisting of the truth. And their, their minds became twisted as they believed the lies of sin. And they put their hope in themselves rather than in their creator. And so the truth for us this morning is that you and I are Adam, and you and I are Eve. We are no better, and we would be deceived if we would think that we could do any better. We're cursed with the same sin problem. So after eating from the tree, Adam and Eve became aware of their sin. They became aware of their nakedness, and they hid from God in the garden. And this brings us to our text this morning, starting in verse 8 of chapter 3. You can read along with me. It says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Then we come to the key verse for this morning, verse 15 of chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This passage, like many found in Scripture, is layered with meaning, but it does have immediate implications for Adam and for Eve. From this point on, there would forever be friction, there would be animosity between um, the serpent and the woman, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. As the, the message phrases this verse, God said to the serpent, I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. So you may be wondering this morning how we ended up here in this text. We're at the start of Advent, it's the most joyous season of the year, and for some reason we've come to the most tragic part of human history where man was separated from communion with our Creator. You know, the fall of creation is to blame for all forms of sickness and sadness and the brokenness that surrounds us. And it may not seem like there's much holiday spirit to be found here, but this is where the waiting for Advent truly begins. Because there's deeper meaning to these verses that we see only in light of Christ. Theologians often refer to this verse as the Proto-Evangelium. That's a fancy word that I don't use. Um, but it, uh, it just means the first good news or the first gospel 
So we receive this first glimpse of good news right here in the wake of the fall. So Genesis 3.15 is a foreshadow of Christ. And Paul tells the church in Rome, in chapter 5 of Romans, he says, But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of this. And so we can read Genesis 3.15 in this way. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. So this is where the first measure of hope was proclaimed. Immediately following the darkness of sin entering the world, there's a hint of light that even though man has messed this up, there would be one who would come from the seed of woman who would make things right again. So church, there's no greater hope than this. In the midst of tragedy, God tells us this is going to be painful. This is going to be difficult. Things aren't going to be as they once were. But one day, sin will be dealt with for good. I love the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. So I want you to listen to what it says about this portion of Genesis where sin enters the world. In another story, it would all be over and that would have been the end. But not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him, lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you, and when I do, I'm going to battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. So church, God promised that one day we would have a second Adam, a better Adam. And Jesus Christ is the better Adam. See, Adam lived in paradise. He lived with the Creator, yet he failed to believe the Word of God. And when he was tempted, he gave in to sin and became a slave to it. But Jesus, even after fasting for 40 days in the wilderness trusted in the promises of God. And when he was tempted, he stood firmly on the word of God as he quoted scripture in response to Satan. See, Adam rejected God's words, but Jesus used them to war against temptation. Pastor J.D. Greer says this, Jesus did what Adam and Eve should have. Withstanding the temptation of Satan, even though the stakes were higher, And the temptation was stronger. Jesus is the better Adam. I want to read a larger portion of text from Paul's word to the Romans. This is 
This is modernized language for this text, but I believe that it, it helps to convey truth. and It helps to reveal the text plainly. So hear these words with me and let's, let's hear the hope found in Christ as the second and greater Adam. Starting in verse 12 of Romans 5, it says, You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. First sin, then death. No one is exempt from either sin or death. The sin disturbed relations with God and everything and everyone, but the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this temptation, this termination of life, a separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points us ahead to the one who will get us out of this. The rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous, life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence, The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes? Absolute life in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift. This grand setting everything right that one man, Jesus Christ, provides. He goes on to say, that when it is sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All that sin can do is threaten us with death. And that's the end. Grace, because God is putting everything together through the Messiah, invites us into life. A life that goes on and on and on. A world without end. And so we see that through Adam... Sin entered the world, and it's through Jesus that we find not just our forgiveness of sin, but true and everlasting life. Pastor John Piper compares and contrasts Adam and Jesus in this way. He says, the obedience of Christ is parallel but vastly superior to the disobedience of Adam. The righteousness imputed to those who are in Christ is parallel but vastly superior to the sin imputed to those who are in Adam because of his disobedience. And the life that comes to us who are in Christ through that imputed righteousness is parallel but vastly superior to the death that comes to those who are in Adam through that imputed sin. And so what do we do with this information this morning? How does this apply? First and foremost, if if you're hearing these words this morning, then with me, I encourage you to be reminded of the gospel. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, please hear this simple yet profound truth. In the wake of the fall, when sin entered the world, God promised to fix it. 
He sent Jesus to do what Adam could not do and what we, church, could not do. He lived the life that we could not live, and he died the death that we rightly deserved. And it's only through faith in Jesus that this curse is broken. As Paul tells the Corinthians, for just as Adam, in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So to the doubter, the skeptic, the unbeliever, put your faith in Jesus and live. And if you have put your faith in Jesus this morning, then join with me and be reminded of the hope that we have in this gospel. Let's remember together in this season of Advent that our faith is in a God who has proven himself to be faithful. He's proven himself to be loving. And for thousands of years, the people of God have put their faith in him. They trusted that he would keep his promise to put everything right and they put their hope in the hands of the coming promised Messiah. They trusted that his word was true and that one day there would come a savior who would crush the head of the serpent. So God had a plan in place from the very beginning to redeem a people for himself through the work of Christ and he followed through with that plan. He kept his promise. He said He did what he said he would do, and Jesus, our Messiah, truly came to earth. God made flesh to dwell among us. He was indeed bruised, but he decisively crushed the head of the serpent. There's one more piece of this puzzle that's often overlooked. I mentioned earlier that Advent is defined by the coming or the second coming of Christ. And the truth is that the earlier practices of Advent that we see in the history of the church had at least as much to do with the second coming of Christ as it did the first. And I know that it's often that we spend the majority of our time looking at his first coming. Um, But the early church would begin at the beginning of Advent, um, remembering... um, that he promised to return. They would be looking forward with great anticipation to his second coming. And then as Christmas approached, they would then shift to remembering his first coming. And the celebration of his first coming would begin. And so, church, in this Advent season, we should long for the return of Christ with all of the fervency and all of the desperation with which God's people longed for the promised Messiah in the first Advent. So as we sing the words of Advent songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears, we we echo the longing of God's people in the Old Testament as they waited for Christ's first coming, and we look to the promise of his return. We take hope knowing that our God keeps his promises And just as he kept his word in sending the Messiah to make a way for salvation, he will continue to be faithful. So are you struggling this morning to find hope in this season? Are you constantly aware of the brokenness that surrounds us in a fallen world? Let's take heart remembering that this season of Advent, our God has proven his faithfulness. He will keep his promise to return. 
We sang the song Holy earlier, and there's a verse in that song that echoes the words of the, um, of the creed, and it says, You will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. All eyes will see his glorious face shining like the sun. And so we believe that, church. We can take heart knowing that he will return. He will keep his promise. And when he comes, he will put an end to the brokenness of this world. There will be no more suffering, no more tears. All will be made right. So this is the hope that the gospel provides. And the season of Advent is a grace afforded us to be able to look back, to be reminded of the faithfulness of God through countless generations and to look forward with hope and joy to the return of our Messiah. So church, let's celebrate the coming of Jesus the fulfillment of the first part of the prophecy, and let's wait with great anticipation for the second coming of Jesus, for as surely as he came, he will come again. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.